1: In this episode, I speak with Pittsburgh City Councilwoman Erica Strasburger, the first woman elected to her office. We talk about Erica's path from environmental organizer and advocate to policymaker, as well as how we can restore people's faith in government. She also movingly and powerfully shared her experience about how the horrific Tree of Life synagogue shootings early in her tenure impacted her community, her leadership style, and spurred her to action. Stay until the end where she talks about what makes Pittsburgh so special. She just may have you wanting to move there. I hope you enjoy. Well, Erica Strasburger, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's great to be here. I'm so happy to see you. It's been a while. And I was getting prepped for this interview. I was thinking about the fact that we've known each other for a while. We met... When you were chief of staff for another New Deal leader, Dan Gilman in Pittsburgh, great guy who went on to be the chief of staff for Mayor Peduto in Pittsburgh, and you ran and took that seat that you'd been chief of staff on, I thought that might just be a really interesting place to start. It's obviously you you know, had had a career in public service prior to being chief of staff and being chief of staff for a city council member before you decided to run for office. So maybe just to start with kind of what led you into that direction for a career, like what interested you in public service?
2: I had always been interested in sort of the volunteering, volunteerism, public service aspect of how a career could merge with public service. I didn't think of it in those terms necessarily, but I think it's part of the reason I, out of all the different interests I had while I was in college, went toward um, environmental studies because... It seemed like a way I could do good, you know. I could do good in this world, and that was my main motivation. And, you know, what really lit a fire underneath me was when I took a class called. I remember it was an environmental engineering class. I was not an engineer by any means, but it was an engineering class called hazardous waste in society. And while it wasn't my first introduction to environmental justice issues, it really allowed us to dig deep into the not only the science of you know, hazardous chemicals and the way that they might impact a whole community. But it was a cross-disciplinary course that allowed us to understand, you know, the, you know, in today's terms, the systemic racism that leads to oftentimes environmental justice communities emerging and existing in this world to this day. And that was what, like, the human aspect of these types of issues is really what lit the fire underneath me. And I was really fortunate to get a job right out of college that allowed me to work immediately on these types of issues. I mean, yes, I was working on energy. I was working to pass things like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in New Hampshire, you know, working and learning at the same time through this fellowship I was a part of with Environment America, but was really able to, you know, to do things that meant a whole lot to me. And when I moved down to Pittsburgh in 2008, 2009, that translated into working with some environmental justice communities who were really getting the knocks on their doors from people who wanted to you know, purchase the rights to their minerals underneath their property and extract gas through fracking. And in some cases, people were starting to experience the Polluted water, polluted air, not in all cases by all means, but some people were. And, you know, I was right in the middle of that in southwestern Pennsylvania. And I saw families who were forced to move out of their home. I saw people who were, you know, communities that were torn apart because some people were pro gas and some people were anti gas. And it was just really this emotional experience for so many people in this region. And, you know, I'll say that that was, of course, fulfilling work. And while I was both in New Hampshire and in Pittsburgh, I had the opportunity to step outside of some of the pure advocacy work and work to elect pro-environment candidates. I got to do some of the campaigning and actually be, you know, on the electoral side and the pack side of it, and that was really exciting too. And I think in New Hampshire, you know, seeing people who in a citizen legislature, people who are able to run for office and run for state rep, where you're one of 400 and so really, a lot of people, you know, have the opportunity from all walks of life, have the opportunity to do that. No, you're not getting paid, but it brings in a diverse sort of um, set of folks. That was the first time I considered, hmm, that's, you know, I'm going to take note of that. I'm going to, you know, put that in my back pocket for later. And so in Pittsburgh, when I really saw what in 2009, 2010 you know, and so on. It felt very much like a startup community in a lot of ways. It felt like a lot of things were just taking off. There was excitement around, you know, tech and robotics. There was this excitement around like the partnerships and the potential of all of the philanthropy that exists in Pittsburgh and government. And there was just a lot happening. Um, I said, I want to be part of that in some way or another so was able to you know i had probably 200 cups of coffee with people and met as many people as i could and just networked and people in pittsburgh i have to say were amazing i mean everyone opened up their doors and then said oh let me introduce you to three other people i know right it was just amazing i recognize that doesn't happen everywhere but what that led me to was then Being in a place where when Dan Gilman won his primary and I kid you not put on Facebook, I am looking for staff for when, you know, presumably he wins the general, which in Pittsburgh, if you win the primary, you're probably going to win the general in this very democratic, you know, heavy city. He said, I'm looking for staff. I just emailed him and I said, look, I'd love to throw my hat in the ring. I know I haven't been in politics per se in this way, but I'm interested. We had a cup of coffee. He said, I had no idea you'd even be interested. Please, yes, interview. And I got the job. So that was my first foray into that part of politics, bringing everything I'd learned as an organizer and an advocate over to you know local politics and local government.
1: That's amazing. I've never heard that story. I love that story. <laughs> About how you connected with Dan. That's amazing. So I mean, I wanna unpack so much of what you just said. Maybe just starting with kind of, you know, what do you think those skills in terms of organizing, in terms of advocacy, bring to you in understanding how change gets made as now a decision, of policymaker yourself, you know, what are those skills that you learned that that translate to, to being the decision maker, but also like, what is your advice to people who want to see change made who are coming before you or, you know, coming before any council in America? Like what's kind of the role of advocacy and organizing and all of this?
2: Yeah, there's a lot there. I think one is that you know, there were a lot of people who said, oh, you've crossed over to the other side, right like my fellow advocates who thought I was going to the dark side somehow by being part of you know the government and what I found especially being an elected official and especially at local government level is that I'm in this privileged position to be my own advocate and organizer right like how many times have I organized my fellow council members to write a letter to or even stronger a will of counsel to, The EPA to strengthen, you know, X standard around air pollution or around water quality. How many times have I been able to testify at DEP or EPA hearings as an elected official on issues I care about? It's not just environmental issues; it's it's any number of issues. So, being able to understand where, you know, there's always power involved and where my power lies and how I can harness that and utilize it for even issues that fall outside of the reach of local government. So I try to keep my organizer hat on and my advocacy hat on whenever possible, not all the time. But another thing that I remember learning, and I think actually, I said this to Dan all the time, I I learned as much if not more about organizing and how to be an effective advocate the first year I was in local government than I did in the nine years leading up to that, in part because I saw people who did it really well and I saw people who didn't do it so well. And I was, I think as an advocate myself, I was somewhere in between that. So I see, you know, it is truly relationship-based, right? If you can build a relationship with someone, if I can build a relationship with someone in, you know, higher level of government, and how do you do that? Well, in some cases it's picking the right, Candidate and, and helping support them. But in other cases, it's just, you know, just building a human connection with them and seeing what you can do to understand one another before you need to make the ask. And then when you make the ask for the thing, maybe there's a conversation there. Maybe they will be more willing to help convene a conversation with you or whatever it might be. And I, you know, certainly wish I had taken the time to do that more when I was lobbying and doing advocacy. And I, think that giving elected officials the benefit of the doubt is, by all means, the the biggest piece of advice I would give someone who's starting out as an organizer. That and just don't stick with the people who it's easiest to talk to, right? Like the people who are pro-environment, who are environmental advocates on any number of issues. Like, it's really easy to come to me Also do the work to build relationships with every other council member, every county council member, every elected official in the southwestern Pennsylvania region. Like, do the hard and laborious work of meeting all those people because you can't only rely on the champions on those issues. And so, you know, give everyone the benefit of the doubt until they prove you wrong.
1: Yeah, I love that. And what about like some you know? We I want to talk about some other issues besides environment, but obviously that's something that you've done a lot of work on like, since you've been on council. And you've now done and you're in your second term. You've been reelected. I think without opposition, actually. So is, is that true? Did you run? That on is That is true. <laughs> Very <laughs> fortunate. <laughs> Which is amazing. You know, but so you have you know championed things like a ban on plastic uh, bags, on lead testing um, as part of kind of rental processes. So, you know, as you think about building a coalition, so you've been successful, I guess was my point about that. And, you know, as you think about building coalitions on the council yourself, like what have you found to be effective in promoting some of the issues that you care about, particularly around the environmental stuff?
2: Well, I think coming from the nonprofit sector, I don't know if it's just my own outlook or if it's just some built-in trust, but I work hand in glove with the advocates themselves, right? I don't have to consider them Oppositional, right? Even if they're putting pressure on me, like a lot of pressure to do better, that just means that I need to work with them even more closely. And in most cases, right? Not in all cases. And so I think working with my fellow council members, but also just understanding that the advocates, if they're pushing me, they're doing their job. It's not something I need to take offense to. It's not something I need to be annoyed about. Like they're doing their job. I know my own political limits or what I'm able to accomplish given the circumstances that you know I'm in or any kind of you know bureaucratic or funding limits as well. but it gets really important to work with the community and work with the advocates themselves in addition to building coalitions within government and at higher levels of government. Um, and in some cases, right like it's going to feel uncomfortable. They might tell me ahead of time, we're going to organize, hundreds of petitions and emails coming into you and to council members, I just say, okay, <laughs> that gives me fuel to be able to say that people want this, right? So I think it's really important to work with the people who are on the ground doing that, that organizing and that advocacy as well.
1: Yeah. Maybe this is a tougher question, but I don't mean it to be, but I mean, what do you do when you're not totally in lockstep with someone in terms of, you know, having to say no to people sometimes, right? If, for whether it's funding or what other restrictions, or even just a difference of opinion. And sometimes presumably, how do you approach that?
2: Yeah, it is hard, right? And all you can do is be straight with people and hope that they are appreciative that you're being honest with them. And that this isn't the only bite of the apple that we're going to push it a little bit further. And that next time, you know, we can push it even further. And I think, you know, aside from a few people most understand that perspective.
1: Yeah you're giving lots of advice, whether you're an elected official or just a human, to be honest right now. (laughs) But uh, I love that. I want to switch gears a little bit. I mean, you know, it's interesting to me when I have these conversations with elected officials, you know, how their experiences have impacted their, of course, you know, their role on a council or in a legislature, what they care about. So, you know, one of the things happened to you was very soon after your tenure or being elected to the council, there was the horrific shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue in, in your district in Squirrel Hill. And I'm just kind of curious about, you know, how that impacted you as a newly elected official who had some power to use your word and some sense of agency about being able to do something. And obviously you were able to take that experience and put forth legislation to, you know, in response to that tragedy. But, you know, just what was that whole thing like for you? And how do you feel like you were able to impact some change?
2: I have to say that has completely shaped the way that I've approached leadership in my tenure on council. Yeah, I was elected in a special election, March of 2018, and I was sworn in in April And yes, I had had four years as a chief of staff under my belt. So I had some knowledge of the community, but it was October 27th of that same year that the shootings took place. And, you know, for my story, I happened to be a block away at a house party about to go canvassing for a state rep candidate who was running for a seat outside of Pittsburgh, but coincidentally happened to be Jewish. And there was this you know, horrific synagogue shooting a block away from us. And I was with My state rep, who was also at that sort of canvassing launch party and fielding calls, you know, within half an hour by the New York Times, I mean, not knowing what was going on myself and just the waiting, the waiting. It was a terrible, terrible day and horrific experience. And, you know, within a day, our high school students, our youth are the ones that came together to organize a vigil at the heart of Squirrel Hill, which is, you know, sort of the heart of the Jewish community in Pittsburgh. And Forbes and Murray is the is the center of Squirrel Hill. And that's where just hundreds, if not a thousand people came together for a, a really powerful vigil. And that was the beginning of what I think journalists from all over the world witnessed as, you know, Squirrel Hill residents, Pittsburghers supporting one another and really showing up. And, you know, I think what really a couple things stuck out for me. One was that at the time, you know, it's really easy to doubt yourself and to think, wow, like I should have been a leader who knew more people in the community, who was able to, you know, have every Jewish leader and every kind of um, faith leader on speed on my phone or have their cell phone numbers. Or if I'd only been in office longer, I would have had more connections and able to do more. And that didn't matter, right? Like you just, this is about the long game. The trial for the shooter is commencing this April. So it's been that many years. And it's about continuing to show up for the community and just say like, look, I'm not going to be flashy about it. I'm just here. I'm still here. So I think that was a learning for me. Another is, comes up again and again to the point where I think in the moment it felt a little bit overplayed, but I'll say it again here. I mean, Squirrel Hill was Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. This is where Fred Rogers lived. The church where we gathered, Six Presbyterian Church at Forbes and Murray, that was his church. So, you know, there was a lot of talk about leading with kindness, standing up against hate. And I felt, felt it all the more powerfully because... People in Pittsburgh love Mr. Rogers and who doesn't, right? I mean, a lot of people around the world certainly grew up with him. But to have that overlie this whole approach to the way that we were going to deal with community and hold one another and really be there for one another, it certainly informed my leadership style going forward from there and how we combat hate with, you know, maybe righteous indignance once in a while
1: but not
0: with hate. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I just want to take a moment to recommend another great podcast. It's called Sidebar. It's discussions with state and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. The co-hosts are two law school deans, Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. For more information on Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org or wherever podcasts are found. Now, back to our conversation.
1: That's so powerful. I mean, you also, it's super, super powerful to think about from that from a leadership perspective. There also is a public policy, you know, angle to this, right, of what can be done to try to combat these kinds of, I mean, you sadly are part of a, you know, very large group of elected officials who've had this horrific shootings in they areas, obviously yours was unique as a hate crime and, and antisemitism and other pieces of it. But, you know, this is just happening so often and too often. And as we're seeing, you know, this weekend after Nashville, do you have any thoughts about kind of on the policy side of it after this happened, you know, that there was a moment for you to push some legislation to try to address it? You know, tell us a little bit about that. And in particular, if there are lessons you learned from that on how other communities might be able to enact change and hopefully not having to wait for a tragedy to happen, but you know, enact change to address some of this what's happening.
2: Yeah. So within a month of well, I would say the announcement came in the midst of a share Squirrel Hill with another council member. The council member who shared Squirrel Hill with me as a city council member at the time was named Corey O'Connor. He's now been elected to become county controller. So he's no longer in that seat. But at the time, you know we were we were going on these national TV shows together, and it seemed like every national TV show we went on, we were sort of bolstering each other up, saying, we're going to do something. What we're hearing from our community is, we have to do something. We have to pass sensible gun legislation. What's interesting, and I have this strong memory of two weeks prior, speaking at a Jewish teen kind of learning session on a Saturday, and explaining to them why... <laughs> I didn't think we had the power to pass on legislation. I mean, there's some state legislation that had been passed at by some state reps who really wanted to restrict cities' ability to legislate on firearms. And so they expressly prohibited cities from doing so. And despite that, we worked and we found lawyers who want from some of the largest firms in Pittsburgh who wanted to help us pro bono, our own amazing lawyers at the city of Pittsburgh, and Corey and I just put our staff on this. And for six months about, it was nose to the grindstone. We worked on this. We poured through, you know, cases, case law. <laughs> we worked with the lawyers who worked with us pro bono. And we able to carve out what I think was some pretty impressive pieces of legislation that would get at, maybe not directly, but as directly as we... Believed we could under the restrictions that we were under, the state restrictions we were under, getting at assault weapons, getting at accessories and kind of those that would allow for non-semi-automatics to become semi-automatics, and getting at red flag laws. So, you know, in lieu of involuntary committing someone, you know, being able to temporarily get a court order issued to take their firearms away, in addition to an additional requirement or penalty against someone who does not lock up their guns in the presence of a minor. So, you know, we worked and worked and worked and we passed it. And we had support from amazing support from our mayor, state reps, state senators, other council members, and we passed it. And It was just, you know, because everything happens all at once, I was able to vote from home over the phone because a week prior I had given birth. So there's that. That'll happen in the middle of this, too. But it was really proud, Dave, for me to be able to not only announce the bill, but to vote on it and to see it pass and to see all the, you know, moms demand action folks standing behind me along with community members who came out to some of the most intimidating forums that I'd ever seen in my life in the very echoey lobby of our city county building, where we had mostly, I would say, majority people who didn't want to see the, these bills passed coming in from out of town and testifying, not even city of Pittsburgh residents. And the majority of Pittsburgh residents, including some young people who were affected by the Tree of Life shooting, coming and testifying very bravely. So when I had to stand up and Make my case, or, you know, take the hits on social media from Second Amendment, you know, defenders to the very last nth degree, or whatever it might have been, I had those young people, those really brave young people in my mind and kind of standing behind me, saying, "You got to do this. This is our future. So, you know, that was a really difficult time. I think that it wouldn't have happened without, The people calling for it without the public clamoring for some sort of change, understanding that we were meeting a moment that, you know, we were promptly sued both personally and, you know, as it relates to the legislation, the city's appealing it, probably appealing it all the way to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. We'll see how that goes. Aside from that, I think the act of passing this legislation and taking it very seriously I hope it will make measurable change as we continue to make measurable change on this issue at the state level. It was cathartic for a community that was really experiencing trauma, knowing that there were elected officials who truly cared enough to work on this issue, which is what they were calling for. We have to make, you know, so much more change to address the underlying causes of this xenophobia and anti-Semitism and hate and you know the prevalence of you know unchecked flow of guns in our streets and all of that. All of that is so important. And you know, in this moment, this is what was called for.
1: Yeah. Well I mean there's so one just reaction, a couple of reactions to what you just said, which is so inspiring and powerful. And thank you. You know, one is just to your point about, you know, that this is common sense gun laws, right, that your community was asking for. And I'm, I'm so struck by what you said about people from out of town coming in to oppose the legislation or to, you know, that it just feels so frustrating that there is, it feels to me like that there's so much consensus in this country around some common sense stuff. To have to fight that is frustrating. Two, we could do a whole episode on, we probably should at some point. I don't think that it gets enough attention, this whole preemption concept that you were talking about, which is this idea that the state is going to tell, and this is happening a lot, where you've got red state legislatures with blue cities in their states, you know, where legislation is being passed at the state level to say, we're going to take that autonomy away from cities to be able to make decisions. I find that to be so... Crazy, frankly. Like, right, you know, that you're taking the will of the people in the city away from them, right? That they've elected their representative government in Pittsburgh or Boise or wherever. And, you know, to be able to say, no, we're not going to actually let you make decisions that are counter to the state stuff just seems so wrong. And I don't, I don't think people are, it's happening everywhere. and, And I'm not sure how much people are aware of it. And then third, my other reaction is, you know, how interesting for you, Erica, that, you know, again, we were talking to come back to a point earlier that you ran unopposed, right? So this, whatever political whatever threats were made against you politically, right? That, you know, we're going to take you out for this, you know, from an election standpoint, you obviously have won the trust of your you know, your constituents. And so I find it so heartening when people take brave stands that are sometimes hard to take and then are rewarded politically for it. So I just want to say that that makes me really happy for you. Yes, <laughs> is what I want to say about that. So thank you for your leadership on that. And it it's such a heartbreaking time, honestly. Can I ask you another question, which kind of is... Related, but not totally related, which is I was really struck by something I read that you said. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, recently in an article. I think about your transit authority, whatever the local version is called, where you were talking about the important work they did and how important the work they do in restoring people's faith in government. This is a really big theme on Mon right now, and I think it relates also to... You know, the federal government has passed a bunch of legislation under the Biden and Harris administration to send a lot of resources to the states and localities coming out of COVID, the uh, American Rescue Plan dollars, and then the bipartisan infrastructure deal, and then inflation reduction act and others, which is going to allow, you know, a lot of work to be done at the state and city level to address some of those longstanding inequities you were talking about earlier around climate, around housing, around broadband, around so many issues. And I kind of feel like there's this moment we have. To particularly as people who believe that government has an important role to play, to make the case that government can do good things means that that money is going to really great things that are impacting people's daily lives. So I'm just kind of curious about how you think about your role as an elected official in terms of trying to help restore people's faith in government and as a sub point, you know, whether or not some of that federal money can help you do that a little bit.
2: I love this question because it's what I think about all the time and what I really try to hammer home, you know, with my staff, with interns, especially when they are the ones fielding calls from, you know, at the local, local level, right? We're getting calls about everything. And it might not be the case in every city, but I suspect it's it's the case in a lot of cities with full-time city councils. Like you're the default for, I have a question about my utility bill, right? Or I have a question about something that is county related, but we're not we have a separate city county system. Um it's our job to help them, right? Not to pass them off to someone else, but to really truly help them because this we might experience it as calls and emails coming in like mail, it doesn't stop, but they experience it as I either I have a problem, I don't know who to call. I think I'm going to call I think someone told me about my council member. I'm going to try calling them and give it a shot. And if they call and they have an excellent experience, that kind of restores their a little bit their faith in government, because that might be the one time that they ever interact with government, or at least the local government, right? So like, we only have one opportunity every single time someone calls or emails us. And it's sort of a customer service model. But I also think that, you know, for the people who are True do gutters, right? They're the ones who are emailing us maybe every month because, you know, in this case, the sign is tilted. And in this case, you know, the stop sign is tilted. And in this case, you know, this street really needs to be on the paving list for next year. And they're just kind of always watching the street. Like they're doing a public service. And so we got to meet them there and be as enthusiastic as they are about delivering excellent public service to them. And that goes all the way up to, You know, the safety of our bridges, which is what that article was about. It was just over a year ago that the Fern Hollow Bridge collapsed in Pittsburgh, the day that President Biden was here to talk about infrastructure. I mean, the conspiracy theorists had a field day with that, right? Of course, but it was a total coincidence. And, you know, with a city like Pittsburgh that experienced such disinvestment after the steel industry collapsed in the 1970s and losing half of our population, losing the tax base that went along with it, just a whole generation of people gone. We're still clamoring back from that disinvestment and that's affecting our bridges, it's affecting our stormwater infrastructure, it's affecting you know, our building stock and you know, we were under state oversight for 15 years. It's a, almost the equivalent of bankruptcy for a city. So we're clamoring out of that time of austerity where we just didn't have a staff to do anything forward looking, we were just trying to maintain. So building back from that is a challenge and it's ongoing and it can cause some you know, morale issues within staff. And we have to take advantage of this word once in a lifetime. I think once in a lifetime, at least once in a generation opportunity to go after the grants that do exist at the federal level aggressively. The ones that we know that we can, you know, partner with other regions with or, you know, whether it's all of the Appalachian region or whether it's just southwestern Pennsylvania or just Pittsburgh. As long as it's not too much mission creep and it's not going to spread us too thin, I think we have to go after everything we can because, you know, we are in this position in part because of Pittsburgh's own story. But I would posit that it's also federal austerity that started in the 1980s mixed with deregulation that allowed cities to be left with a bill without any assistance from federal government until basically now. So this is this huge opportunity. And is it going to fix every bridge in Pittsburgh? I mean, we're the city of bridges. Is it going to help us fix every bridge in Pittsburgh? No, but it's going to get us on a path toward some sustainable level of, of rebuilding and of maintenance. And if we're doing it right, we're being holistic and intersectional about the way we think of it. So we're not just getting the money to build bridges. We're getting money to figure out our, you know, how our climate action plan syncs up with the whole County's climate action plan and how that allows us to create a pipeline of jobs that then we can plan as, you know, youth violence is now a priority of our mayor. So you know, out of school time is also something that we're all thinking about. How we pair out of school time and STEM education out of school with the clean energy jobs of the future or the construction jobs of the future. I mean, it is a long game play, but it's something we we can start to plan for now mm-hmm. and start to make a difference immediately in people's lives. There are jobs to be had now. And you know, put us on a really, really positive path that we wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to were it not for that federal investment. And then the last piece is we got to tell the story. So this is thanks to the amazing work of people who have worked for cities now working in the federal government and understanding how, you know, what the needs are.
1: Yeah, no, you're so right about telling the story and making sure people realize where those dollars went and the impact they've had is a really important full circle part of that, right? It's not just doing it and, you know, assuming people know that it's happening. It's actually telling the story relentlessly. I totally agree with you. I want to end with a question I hadn't thought that I was going to ask you, but listening to you talk about earlier about Pittsburgh and the uniqueness of Pittsburgh and the culture and the friendliness and all that, you know, I mentioned when we started this the podcast about you and I meeting, we met because New Deal brought a group of elected officials from across the country to see Pittsburgh. And as part of this was pre-COVID, but we were doing these innovation tours and we brought a handful of, of electeds from across the country to see some of the stuff that was happening in your entrepreneurship space, in your, in your tech space, your partnerships between city and philanthropy and education with Carnegie Mellon and other things. I have to tell you personally, totally honestly, I was blown away by Pittsburgh. I had a vision of Pittsburgh in my head, which is completely antiquated. And I came to Pittsburgh, I literally called my husband and said, I think we should think about moving to Pittsburgh. He reminded me that I've never lived in snow and I probably couldn't hack it. But I want to just end in a question, kind of letting you do a little commercial for Pittsburgh. You live in a great city. And what do you want people to know about Pittsburgh?
2: Well, first of all, I think you should move to Pittsburgh. At least be a snowbird. At least consider being a snowbird. A lot of people do that. They live here in the spring and summer when it's glorious. And then they go back to wherever that's warm in the in the winter. Winters aren't really that bad. We barely had snow this year. Way less than California. I'll just say that. But it's true. (laughs) I would say, oh, Pittsburgh has everything that a really big metropolis has, just fewer of them, right? Like it has, let's just start with the arts. It has a world-class symphony orchestra. It has world-class theater and dance and culture, a whole cultural district downtown that was the doing of, civic leaders who turned what formerly was an abandoned red light district into a cultural district. Now more theaters and, you know, venues per, I think, square mile than any other place in, in this country. It has three rivers, which feeds both a lot of waterfront and a lot of really interesting, you know, opportunities around waterfronts and trails, which brings me to kind of one of my loves. It's outside of culture which is outdoors. The outdoors community here is surprisingly vibrant. It's everything from kayaking and canoeing to hiking. We have amazing trail system because another thing about Pittsburgh, it was, I believe I might get this wrong, but the seventh largest city in the country in the Gilded Age in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when the Carnegie's and the Mellon's, thus Carnegie Mellon University and the Fricks and all of them were running the show. And by all means, that was not a, a fun time in Pittsburgh. I mean, the labor movement was born out of Pittsburgh right then for a reason. But what also happened was it was very popular in that time to establish parks and libraries. So we also have a lot of big parks, with great trails, and a lot of libraries. So, and that's persisted throughout the time, you know, since then. So our great outdoors community, obviously, vibrant sports community, but we're a city of neighborhoods. And because of our interesting topography, I mean, we have hills, we have even something called Mount Washington, which maybe isn't as tall as Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Nothing is, but we have an incline that goes to the top of a mountain. So it's just really beautiful, interesting topography and a city of neighborhoods. I think a lot of people think of You know, New York City or Chicago as being a city of neighborhoods, we have 90 neighborhoods and they're all distinct. And some of them are tops of hills, some of them are bottom of valleys, and you could just spend years and years walking these neighborhoods and exploring and seeing what's going on. And I think that is part of the reason why when we worked with the Rockefeller Foundation on Pittsburgh's resilience and how well we can absorb shocks and stressors, we came out ahead of a lot of other cities because although it can be a hindrance to allowing outsiders in one thing, once you're here and once you're in, you got the community, you know, your community has your back and all of Pittsburgh has your back. And I think it came out after the the shooting of the tree of life. And I think it comes out in other ways, certainly during COVID in the lockdown, it came out and was very apparent. So, you know, please, yeah, come to Pittsburgh, eat our wonderful food, enjoy a walk in the park, see everything from the Phipps Conservatory to the Carnegie Museum of Natural History and Art to the Andy Warhol Museum, explore some of our more quirky findings as well. Take a walk through the Strip District, which is a, you know, it's like a giant market in one neighborhood. And yeah, come and spend money here. We'd love to have you.
1: Sold. Sold. Great job. Well, Eric, it was so fun to talk to you today. I just really appreciate all the work that you're doing as a you know, national leader on so many fronts, environment, on guns, on, on other things. And just, you know, we're so happy to have you part of New Deal. I'm
2: glad you came on to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
0: An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.